HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, and this is episode 400. And I'm so glad to be joined in the studio by Kirsten Shockey, who started fermenting ever since her mother gave her an antique crock of sauerkraut. And since then, she and her husband, Christopher, have combined vegetables, salt, and thyme to create a plethora of fermented pantry ingredients, harnessing the powers of good bacteria for flavor, preservation, and health purposes. Now at Malonia Farms, their 40-acre hillside homestead in southern Oregon, the Shockies are teaching their fermentative ways, and there's even a free e-course online. Um, at their, in their latest book, Miso Tempe Natto and Other Tasty Grains, focuses on those that include legumes and cereal grains without limiting themselves to the cultures they came from. Or as the Shockies say, it's way more than sticky beans and fuzzy rice. First of all, welcome to the studio. Uh, I've long been fans of your books. Fermented Vegetables is, is certainly a, a, you know, a bookend of my bookcases, and I've read it hundreds upon hundreds of times, that when this book landed in my hands, uh, first, the weight of it alone, it's a 400-plus <laughs> page you know, softback, um, and Miso, tempeh, and natto, three things that I, I certainly know. It's in my lexicon, but I don't have much depth in making. Um, interest me in, in, in this way that I'm like, okay, I'm ready to dive in. And I would say it's an ominous task, but it is a big task to undertake and understand these things before ever stepping forward into them. Uh, how do you dispel the fear initially just of what fermentation is for anyone that's never fermented anything before? Do you want me to take that? Sure. 
Let's see. So the first thing is we just talk about how people have been fermenting for thousands of years um, with very little equipment and really no equipment, maybe just a vessel or whatever they need for their fermentation. Um, so it's not that tricky. Um, and we've evolved with our collaborations with these microbes. And so it's really important to kind of bring that back. And once you kind of let yourself go and, and realize, you know, it isn't that tricky, it, it works. <laughs> I, I saw an interview recently, I think, of Christopher stating that before oh. meeting your wife, you had only really eaten iceberg lettuce, potatoes, and corn. That's true, and only iceberg lettuce if I had blue cheese. <laughs> I was really swimming in it. Yeah. Oh, was there a fear of fermented products, or did you even know that they existed at that point? You know, we had uh, I can we had canned sauerkraut, but I didn't eat it. I, and I think this happens where you know if your parents aren't adventuresome, then you're not adventuresome. So you know their parents weren't adventuresome, my parents weren't adventuresome, and so we just continue. You eat what your parents cook you. And uh, I was happy about that until I met this woman. <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk about your grandchildren, Lyra and Finn, who you dedicate the book to. Right. Uh, they're the ones that are, you know, uh, in love with eating these sticky beans and fuzzy rice. Uh, how do you get generations of people that, you know, did not eat it into it? Like, what is the gateway into fermented foods? Um, I kind of think the first gateway is not telling them that it's weird, right? Because these are kids. Um, we used to stand at the market and watch kids scooping forkfuls of our sample sauerkraut into their mouth. And while they were doing it, you know, their parent would walk up behind them and say, you're not going to like that. And you're just looking at the parent going, what gives? Look, they, they like it. Don't, don't tell them they're not going to like it. And I think with... Um, with our grandkids, they just have been around it, and they they love these foods. I think Lyra's first, for one of her first foods was sauerkraut, and she is all in. And her first <laughs> word, lactobacillus, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Actually, aspergillus arising. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I love microbe jokes, and there are going to be plenty more of these. Uh, but don't you think that living in Oregon skews the way maybe you see food culture? <laughs> or especially where you live in Oregon. Well, you know, uh, we actually live in the rural countryside, and we've got a lot of uh, people live far out where we are, either because you're escaping something, you're hiding, you're waiting for the apocalypse, or you're you're growing weed, and um, or or you've come up from California, semi-retired, and trying to play farmer, you know. But it, the the pockets in Oregon, you know, the really liberal places in Portland and Eugene, but really. Oregon's a very red state, too, outside of that. And there's a lot of people that, you know, just neighbors who think we're crazy for doing this, you know. Um, so I don't know if it's much more liberal than other places in terms of food or not, you know. it's uh, This is one of those things where we come across pockets of people who have experienced the foods, and mostly they haven't, especially with this book. It's, it's pretty new for everybody. I mean, not to talk more about the political divide, but... Who eats fermented food? Who takes your courses? Is it people that are open-minded to not just food itself, but life? Or do you find a specific type of demographic coming to you? I feel like with um, fermented vegetables, when, we, when it came out in 2014, we were preaching to the choir. It was a yeah. very specific demo, um, demographic, you know, the, the more earthy population that was into it. 
Um, however, now with vegetables, especially you just, you'll see anybody, so many people want to heal themselves and they've heard these foods are, are what they need. Um, gut health is, you know, huge. And so fermented vegetables in general, any kind of lactic fermentation seems to be, you know, we used to be people kind of rolled their eyes or didn't know what we were talking about and made a hot dog joke, you know, <laughs> and now that's just so we're seeing it more and more mainstream. We're seeing, you know, little old ladies that you would have never seen at our classes a few years ago. And here we are out on the, the, you know, first main leg of our tour and, you know, we're defining miso, we're defining koji, we're defining tempeh, we're defining um, natto because people haven't seen these foods at all. But they're very much part of these same foods for health and flavor that the vegetables are. So I, I guess we're out here pushing, <laughs> pushing people's minds again. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, we're definitely in a new era where... You know, 10 years ago, you had to be Korean to not only eat, but make kimchi. And now you see it on menus around the country, in people's homes. Um, what other things have shifted in the past decade? Well, I think, you know, 10 years ago when we talked about uh, this being healthy for you, people would say, well, I, I heard about these probiotic things. And now people want to talk, talk about... Uh, gut microbiome right away with us and it's just fascinating to me that that in 10 years this whole idea of a healthy gut and what it means for for us and our health has really just boomed and so sometimes we have to back people up and say hey it's also tasty you know don't yeah. forget about that yeah flavor feels like it's gone by the wayside a little bit when people start making fermented things they go through the process and say oh i did this it's almost like these tech bros making bread. Like, <laughs> I'm at this much hydration. And it's not always about the numbers. It's about the feel, the sensation, the emotive part afterwards. Absolutely. Well, and the flavor, because I, I try to remind people in, in the classes, it, it doesn't matter, you know, how, because people will ask me, well, when is it, when's the peak probiotic content, you know, and they're trying to make um, this food more of a medicine than it needs to be. And I just remind people that if it's tasty, you're going to eat it. And if you eat it, then it's going to be wonderful for you. If it's got great probiotics, but it's sitting back in your fridge because you don't like it, um, then it's... <laughs> <laughs> mood point. It's mood exactly. point. And I think with, you know, the chefs and with all the culture around good food and, and having chefs put kimchi and purple sauerkraut in in food i think that's also helping push mm -hmm. that somewhere in the book it states that the four roles of fermentation are flavor preservation enrichment and detoxification so we've talked about three of those what exactly is enrichment so we'll say you have a vegetable or a bean or or whatever you want to ferment um the amazing thing that happens is those microbes are going to work to bring bring the nutritional value of that food up. It's really not all about probiotics. To me, it's more about making it more digestible. Um, digestible. They're pre-digesting a lot of the things that we can't digest in our guts. Um, they're breaking it down in ways that make it more healthful. In the case of soybeans, that fermentation takes away the anti-nutrients. Um, and... You're also getting more vitamins on board. In the case of natto, you're getting um, 
crazy high amounts of K2. And, and for folks that have osteoporosis, um, which really can be anybody after a certain age, you know, you're just losing that. Or, um, you know, your blood vessels getting calcium deposits in them. That gets in there and it's like it scrubs it out of your blood and it builds it onto your bones. And, and there's studies showing that, that the high K2 and, and natto combined with the enzyme natto kinase can really take osteoporosis and, and, and stop it. And, and is it anything more than just maybe soaking or parboiling something? I mean, those seem like such simple procedures to, you know, change the, the, the makeup of these cereal grains and beans. And it gives you so many benefits. Why wouldn't we be doing that with all grains and beans? We should be. Yeah, soaking is really the first fermentation. Just soaking alone, even if you're never going to make miso or tempeh or something like that, just that soaking step and, and rinsing out that water and starting there with your beans versus buying a can of beans, you're getting an entirely different food. And farts, right? Like, doesn't it help <laughs> it get does. rid of farts? <laughs> we tell people that, but we're selling a book right now. So, <laughs> you know, the science is out. Maybe. I mean, that, that's another thing that I'm hoping you can dispel. Like, what are the preconcepts of fermented foods that ward people away from it? Well, and one that, you know, I think farther back, that it's a cultural thing. You know, uh, sauerkraut belongs to Germans and kimchi belongs to Koreans and any of these in this book are either Indonesian or they're Chinese or they're Japanese. And, you know, it doesn't belong to us, whoever the us is. But then we take that apart and say, okay, well, what's your food, your us food? And they start naming foods that came from Europe usually, you know, so you can either go at it that way or just say, you know, it's, it's today's world's a melting pot. You know, everyone takes inspiration from something else. We mash it up, we mix it up. That's the way the world's become, and it's beautiful that way. And so it's just breaking that, that putting walls up to say this is theirs and this is ours. Um, you know, and food's a wonderful way to do that when you start mixing these foods together and, and coming up with things. And it, I think it's freeing, too, because, you know, we, we were in uh, Philly last night at, a, at the public library, and we were teaching people how to make um, shiokoji and there was one Japanese person in the room. And then other people, this was their very first ferment. And I said, well, you know, have you made sauerkraut? Nope, not yet. And they're just in, jumped right they're jumping yeah. right yeah. in. It's like, wow, it's like you're starting out with a PhD, and then maybe you'll go back to community college at yeah. some point. It's like, <laughs> that's awesome. And But when we, when we talk especially about these ferments with people that are from that culture, we'll get things like, oh, Jesus, natto. Yeah, my mom made me eat that, and I quit eating it as soon as I left the house. Or... It's, you know, I, we only eat it one way, and I never liked it that way. And it's like, well, why do you have to eat it that way? Why don't you eat it this way? And they eat it, and it's like, oh, my God, I didn't know you could eat it that way. So some cultures also, we put things, you know, we, we treat it just one way. And so I think sometimes you have to take someone from another place to say, amazing flavor, let's do this with it. And they say, you don't usually do that. And so that's why I think we really want to go to... To back to Kirsten was in Indonesia last year, but re- we really want to go to Japan and China and Korea and take these crazy ideas there because I think it's going to be very receptive, especially a younger audience who who want to do fun things with these flavors, right? Yeah, I'm, you're not getting too far away from the foundational techniques either. You're just saying that it's not even substitutes, but that there's this other compendium of things that you can use and flavors that you can get out of these things. And yeah, why stop here? 
Exactly. Right. And, and in case of natto, a lot of Japanese people we've met didn't know it comes anyway, but in a styrofoam container with the crappy mustard and the crappy so- uh, soy sauce. Yeah. So it's even just introducing them to the food in a wonderfully prepared raw to that state. It's like, oh my God, that's natto? And, you know, that's enough for them to get those thoughts going about, what are we going to do with this? Well, I kind of also think that um, of these foods and these techniques and this fermentation and taking taking ingredients, in this case, green beans and grains, and making them um, healthier, but also, you know, just on a planetary level of, of taking control of your food and all of that, I think that each of these cultures has gifts to give, and I feel like for example, tempeh is just an amazing way to consume legumes, and I feel like it's sort of Indonesia's gift to the world should the world pick it up and say, wow, you know, we can eat a little less um, factory meat, and we can not, say, change our diet to vegetarian, but maybe a few days a week, you know? And so I think, I think all these foods kind of have their place in healing, healing us and the planet. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about this trifecta of fermentation, miso, tempeh, natto, and other tasty ferments as well, and all the protein-rich beans and wheats such as peas, lentils, barley, sorghum, millet, quinoa, oats, teff, kernza. I mean, you get the idea. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Cabot Creamery Cooperative has been in continuous operation since 1919. They make a full line of award-winning cheeses, Greek yogurt, sour cream, cottage cheese, and butter. And you can taste a century of commitment in every bite. It's simple. The best milk makes the best cheese. Cabot is known for its award-winning cheddars. They're naturally aged, naturally gluten-free, and naturally lactose-free. Try their classic mild sharp and extra sharp cheddars, or spice it up with habanero cheddar, horseradish cheddar, and pepper jack cheese. After 100 years, Cabot Farmer's commitment to making the world's best cheese and dairy products has never been stronger. When you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come. Cabot is owned by 800 dairy farm families in New England and upstate New York, and 100% of its profits go back to its farmers. As a certified B Corp, Cabot is committed to doing the right thing in business. They even have a Department of Gratitude formed to honor, amplify, and reward those who give time to do good, much like the farm families of Cabot do in their own local communities. Learn more about Cabot Creamery Cooperative at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Every week, I sit down with journalists, authors, scientists, or activists to identify and explain some of the key issues in our food system. I've done shows on food waste, labor issues, meat production, water, you name it, I cover it. You can find What Doesn't Kill You wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. 
Hey, and welcome back to the 400th episode of the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here today with Kirsten and Christopher Shockey in their wonderful new book, Miso, Tempeh, Natto, and Other Tasty Ferments. Uh, right before the break, I listed off a whole bunch of beans and wheat. W- what are the ones that people have in their cabinets right now that they didn't know that they can do really amazing things with? Um, I feel like oats. Um, koji and oats and that that can be a lot of fun you get the koji gets in there and um, without getting too much into what koji is doing it's but it's about harvesting those enzymes it gets in there and breaks it down and suddenly your oats taste like oatmeal cookie without adding any sugar or other ingredients Um, any bean really pinto beans you want to add anything I'm trying to think what's in people's pantry. That's, uh, I just wish people had more beans in their pantry, you know? The the one part of me, when you answer that question, like, do they have anything? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to ask the obvious question, like, what do you have in your pantry? Because it's probably just this exhaustive list. Uh, But do you go to other people's houses and, like, root through and see what they have? (laughs) You should. I mean, this should be part but of the tour rather than like... Maybe that's we'll the next book. Philly. We'll be like, in Boston. We'll like, be like, we're going to be in like New Holland, Connecticut at this address. <laughs> you don't even know us, but we're coming to your house right now. Uh, hey, maybe that's another podcast. Yes. <laughs> I like that. What's yeah. in your pantry? Yeah. I, it, it, it is a fascinating thing to see that people have all these ingredients and abilities at their hands. They just don't know how to use them. For sure. For sure. And that goes that goes all the way up the social economic spectrum. You know, we we Kirsten's done a lot of work working with um, in our area, um, low income people and teaching them basic cooking skills. But you know, it's not just an economic thing. People with a lot of money don't know how to cook either. You know, it's just, it's it's a real crisis I think in this country. To, Luckily, to, you don't need to know how to cook to ferment. <laughs> that's a that's, that's a, a good, good point. point. Yeah. That's a very good point. <laughs> but I mean, so you're saying it is a national <clears throat> thing. But let's talk about another national thing, which is tempeh. And define exactly what it is and why it's such an inherent part of Indonesia. So tempeh is a fermented bean cake, if you will. It's fermented, in a, it's different, it's not lactobacillus, there's no bacteria involved. Um, the beans are sort of knit together in this wonderful cake by fungus, so or mold. It's a filamentous fungus and it gets in there. And as the fungus is trying to feed itself, it sets its little hyphae, its roots down in there, and starts to change the bean. And um, as it's doing that, it's also caking it together into this um, wonderful, tasty, kind of chewy. I guess the if you've never seen tempeh, the best um, description is sort of like like tofu but really not i was gonna say just look at the cover of your book right mm-hmm. right I mean, it's such a stunning image because it's also the cross section so you're not just seeing that that fuzzy white exterior which i think is part of the put off right for a lot of people uh it, it's beautiful um and it shows the array of things that can be inside not to get like right traditionally yeah. it's soy yeah um or you know maybe peanuts but yeah here you can you can really do it with any bean. I, I like to say that the the microbes are equal opportunity starch eaters, and so it doesn't really matter what you give them 
for the most part. If you stay within a few parameters, <laughs> you'll get a nice, in this case, bean cake. Yeah. Is that across the board of miso, tempeh, and natto that there is this large latitude of what you can use and still attain a good final product? Absolutely. I mean, we talk about this in the book with miso, miso and some people like Jeremy Mansky is calling miso that are kind of not traditional taste, or excuse me, amino pastes. We call them tasty pastes. Um, but you can take cookie dough or brownie mix if you want to, and you can apply koji to it, and it will start to break down and make delicious flavors. This magic word, koji. Hmm. Right. <laughs> what exactly is it, and what does it do? So koji is another fungus, um, Aspergillus oryzae. It's been collaborating with humans for thousands of years. Um, somewhere along the way, somebody, I guess, had fuzzy white rice and tasted it and realized <laughs> it was quite delicious. Um, but quickly, what's going on is that koji gets on whatever substrate you put it on traditionally. It might be rice or barley or millet or sweet potatoes even. Um, and it breaks it the larger compounds down to it, their simpler parts with enzymes. So the enzymes are little snippers breaking down those, those larger things. So starches become simple sugars, which taste better. Fats become fatty acids, which taste better. Protein becomes aminos, which taste better. So that's um, kind of, it's, it's a pre-step to a lot of other ferments because grains and beans, those starches and all of those things are really locked up. Like yeast can't get in there and make alcohol unless you break out those sugars. And that's what Koji's doing. It's, it's breaking those sugars. So for those of you that are out there and are brewers and understand malting, Koji is Asia's version of malting a grain. So, I mean, is there ever a case you wouldn't apply koji? I mean, it sounds like all these techniques make everything taste better, make everything last longer. Um, it seems counterintuitive not to do these things. You know, I can't think of really any place. I know that, you know, people people that are excited about koji are applying it to just about anything and everything. Um, what, what I kind of wonder about is why it took so long for koji to you know, come across the trade routes, like Koji's been around for, you know, thousands of years, and so many other things were traded back and forth, you know, the pepper and and all these other ingredients and foods that we have have been traded and techniques. And so surprising to me, it's just now that Western culture is kind of looking up and going, wow, this is pretty magical stuff. I think there's a fear of the non not finished product. You know, to have these building blocks and not being able to know what to do with them is, is uh, like you said, maybe a lot of people don't know how to cook, but you don't need to know how to cook to ferment. The fear of not knowing what to do with koji once it's in hand is, is a roadblock. For sure. For sure. Well, you can, you can, the first thing you can do is make amazake which you would just add this koji that you made to another grain. Um, traditionally, again, it's rice. But if you do this with something like oatmeal or your leftover polenta from the night before, you know, and that next morning you've got this super sweet porridge for breakfast that is um, that you really didn't have to cook. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, your body's going to uptake all those vitamins. Polenta, so... 
you're bringing in something that is Italian, maybe with certain cornmeals, American. Um, in going through your recipes, I love seeing the you in them. Uh, and one comes up with tempeh, which is a hazelnut, and I'm assuming because of it being Oregon, uh, and the cacao nib tempeh. Um, chocolate miso babka, miso mustard. Where do these recipes come from? Where do you start applying these base products into how do you actualize them well so we've got a so imagine we've got a fermentation kitchen we've built onto the house we our house has more kitchens than bathrooms so we have three kitchens and only two bathrooms so that's kind of setting the stage we have his and her fermentation caves when we started a new book you know, I, I typically jump in, I'm, I've got science papers up, I'm trying to get the research behind all that, and Kirsten just goes straight to the kitchen and starts making stuff, and the kitchen will just be full of that. And at some point, we take all those things that are, that are making it and start applying it to what, what it's going to taste like, and that's where, as you know, you just start eating a lot of, <laughs> finding a lot of ways to eat these things. I think for me, what what especially with this particular book, like I said in the beginning, we've been pushing people's palates, you know, for a few years now. And what I try to do is think of things people love to eat anyway. (laughs) So we love babka, right? Who doesn't? Maybe not everybody, but you know. No, you're you're speaking to the right person when it comes to. I got in a babka fight yesterday (laughs) with someone telling me one babka was better. I'm like, no, no, it's not. This, this is the one in true babka of Brooklyn. Right. And so you, that's, that's the idea, though. Take these foods that people love. Like with natto, I thought, well, let's find a way to mix it with cheese because there are intersections between the flavors in cheese and the flavors in natto. So I thought, well, what's really, you know, middle America food? And that's pimento cheese. Or mm. let's hide it in a cliff bar because cliff bars kind of have that stringiness you know, from the, the sugar, let's hide a little natto in there. So the idea is just let's find a way to get the foods into somebody's mouth enough with something they're very familiar with. Because if we're just asking folks to eat them the way they've been eaten, it's not going to um, fly necessarily because they haven't eaten them yet. So, <laughs> Do you find that it's sad you have to use the word hide? Uh, in putting these foods into things and rather than reveal. Um, they, I guess people won't eat these things if they know they're in something else. I, I, no, I think it's just more fun that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that I, I, as you mentioned, Christopher did not have a wide repertoire of vegetables. And so I, I started hiding when we were in our early 20s. Yeah. And it was just spinach at the time. <laughs> but I mean, there are things you can't hide. Let's talk about mm-hmm. sticky tofu. Um, you know, there's obviously an aroma that goes along with it. And, you know, even the Burmese fermented tea leaves, there's certainly a smell that goes along with it. And there are textures with other things. You can't hide everything. No, but if you can hide something enough to make it a gateway, the microbes move in and get involved. Um, the science is really clear right now that if that our cravings are not our heads... So what we want, if we're really a babka person or a jelly roll person, it's the guys down below saying, send that down. So to me, if we, if we can find some ways to get these foods on in our mouths and in our guts in the first place, suddenly I think it'll wake up our guts and they'll send more cravings. 
I think it's also great that we have a community of people rather than just yourselves that are not only making fermentations, but supplying the base ingredients needed for those. So let's start shouting out to people like Steve Sando of Rancho Gordo. Like, what has he done for beans in this country? Or White Rose Miso, also known as Keepwell Vinegar, and the transformation of mid-Atlantic ingredients that they're doing. Who Who is helping you lead this this force of fermentation in this country? Well, I'll take Steve. He was really supportive. Um, we found him, and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're working on different beans and you get this package you know, with 12 amazing beans, that's a wonderful place to start. So, And he, I think he thought it was pretty funny what we were doing with his beans, and so... We'll be at his place in a couple of months, and I'm sure he's going to grill us pretty hard on what, he, what we did to his beans. I think we made his beans better. Yeah. I really do. Well, like, what did you do, say, with my favorite is, like, tepary or, like, pinquitos? What, what did you do with those beans that exalted oh, they, them? They got misoed and nattoed. I mean, not nattoed. No, they did. Tepary beans make a nice natto. They do. Um, they got miso, and uh, definitely a lot of his beans became tempeh. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping before we go visit him that we can make a bunch of tempeh and with his beans and show him because he's he's excited to see what what they do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the fermentation community um, and there's so many people that we called out to in the book. Jeremy Umansky, like you said, White Rose Miso, um, just just so generous with their knowledge. I mean, that's that's what I do love about this work is how generous people are because we certainly don't know it all. Um, but a lot of these people are just really playing with food and, and seeing where it can go. Well, I mean, you're generous enough to have a free online course, and I'm sure you're not going to uh, tell someone once they arrive at your farm not to come and help you cook in these three kitchens and feed the many mouths there. Uh, how often are you doing classes and educational things there and how many people do you welcome a year and how 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 would one such as myself apply yeah i wish we were at the farm more than we are Uh, that's the downside of uh you know being out uh teaching people from afar um we're we try to do two or three classes a year intensives so you know multiple days um depending on the spring it's wild crafting a lot of things in the summertime um, we're, we're out in the in the hills, with yeah, sticks in the get, woods, more trees than people. <laughs> first of all, you're not just gonna swing by, yeah, <laughs> unless you completely just upon. yeah, unless yeah. Google's taking you completely the wrong direction. Um, so we do that, and and we're really we're trying to figure out that exact thing because um, you know just the environmental footprint of flying places to teach people is one thing. We're trying to figure out how do we do this in a way that people get get that. Uh, to hold in you know like the the email course it's weird people will see us they'll buy our book but some reason just getting an email saying today all you're going to do is buy these things tomorrow all you're going to do is make this thing that's that works for some people and you know we all learn differently so we're just trying to keep it mixed up um we would we have a we have a dream we haven't actually told anybody about this we have this idea of fermentation without borders right where we we go places and teach teachers how to reclaim whatever it is that they have and just spread that, you know, because I think the earth and people really need this. And so all of us that are in this business should be focused on how do we get this out there as much as we can versus, you know, bringing them in to us. So we're still going to do big class. We can only do 
15 people in the kitchen at a time, really, with knives. Really? No, really, it's 10. That's a small <laughs> space. <laughs> but, but then Kirsten will take another five yeah. <laughs> until the last minute. So I know. If people ask, I, it's hard to say no. So do you mean going out and demystifying how to make dosas or what injera bread is or, you know, all the Korean jangs that you can see in the market? Like gochujang has become one of those ingredients that you see in a lot of menus as well or in people's pantries. But ensuring that people actually know how to make it for themselves yeah or or a fermented virgin Vir- <laughs> virgin <laughs> that's, that's the next book <laughs> it's got a ring virgin. to it so, so much of gochujang that you buy in the store is now been sweetened not by thyme and microbes but by corn syrups and so I mean that, that's just an aside but yeah I, you know whatever whatever that ferment is that that in that area people would want to wherever they want to start but like christopher said teaching teachers to kind of keep going so pollinating and and spreading that way but that's it's an aside but it's a big aside because you can look at all these foods and you know the commercial version of the things that they think are eating healthy isn't and so teaching people sometimes just knowing how to make it will lead you back to the artisan craft maker in your area that sells it for a dollar more but now you appreciate why it's a dollar more. And you're like, I'm not going to make this, but you make a hell of a good. And I understand what it takes for that. I'm going to buy your stuff. And I think that's, I mean, this has been, we've seen, it's great to see all the sauerkraut companies and pickle companies and hot sauce companies, you know, from the first two books that have come up. And they'll say, hey, we got to start with your book and we're making these amazing things. And we point people that way because in the end, it's if you're eating the good food, whether you make it or somebody else that has a passion for it, that's the win and kind of pulling food out of the commercial big big companies hands because they don't care about your nutrition as much as the bottom line you know in corporations just the way they're set up but these little guys really do they they want to make good food that's how they're going to stay in business and uh i mean the natto company in new york right mm-hmm. oh yeah and and yeah, yeah. New York Natto is it's wonderful. It's and the it, bomb, yeah. It really did. It converted me in having been to Japan X amount of times over the past handful of years. And I've have, have had it there out of the styrofoam. And that little, um, it's not even a spoon that they give you. It's like a small little tongue depressor. Just the whole thing is depressing. <laughs> then I had hers, I think, on a cracker with some jam or marmalade. And yeah. The yeah. versatility. I mean, the goodness of what she makes and what you can make either at home or you know, through a relationship with an artisan is that much better, not only flavor-wise. I know we want to talk about flavor, but it heals in so many mm-hmm. deeper and richer ways. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, and Anne has, was so instrumental in making sure that, that the Nato chapter was solid and really helpful. So, Well, if teachers need to teach, here's your curriculum right here, Miso Tempe, Nato, and other tasty ferments, plus your other wonderful books, Fiery Ferments, and fermented vegetables kirsten christopher thanks for being on the food scene thanks for having us you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org i'm your host michael harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next tuesday at three a big thank you to cabot co-op as sponsors music by cookies and matt patterson engineering cheers the food scene is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.